Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. I'm Jay. I'm Linda. And we're very excited after months of planning to bring to you the first episode of Hope Beyond the Badge. Uh, Today we'll be interviewing each other, uh, Linda and myself, so that you can get to know a little bit more about us as your co-hosts. So, Linda, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from? Do you live locally? Yep. So, I'm from originally from Dublin, Ireland, and um, I now live in Braintree. Um, work here in Weymouth, but I live in Braintree with my husband, and um, two of our kids left in the house um, at the moment, Frances and Ailish, um, we have five kids all together. Um, one we lost um, a few years ago, but we'll get back in, into that in a little bit later. But we have Stacy and Christina and Frances and Ailish at home. And I have uh, three beautiful grandchildren, um, Gregory, William and Caroline. Uh, let me see. Where else do we go? I spend a lot of my time in Weymouth. Um, I own a little cafe in Weymouth. And um, been here seven years. We have a cafe that sort of like become a first responder. Uh, I don't want like to say the word hangout, but it's become a cafe that's known to first responders to come in and they're welcome. We get a free coffee on us every day. Yeah. Your family lost a member to suicide. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about who Alex was, a little bit about Alex's life? Yeah. Um, so I'll get back to, you know, tell you a little bit about Alex, but we lost Alex four and a half years ago, October 29, 2018, um, to suicide. Um, he was a police officer in Abington um, at the time. And... Um, <clears throat> Tell you a little bit about him as a, a kid, you know, growing up. I met Alex um, when he was 12 years old. Um, he was that typical turning into a teenager type of kid. Um, I don't know whether I could say that maybe he didn't like me at the time because I was, you know, bringing in a different um, format or a different way of living to him much more structured um, environment when I came in into their lives, the kids' lives, my husband's life um, at the time. Um, So there was a lot of sort of typical kid rebellious against, um, you know, any type of structure, going to school, bedtime, getting your homework done, structured meals, that type of stuff. Um, There was sort of a lot of rebellious coming from, from Alex he was a great kid, great, great kid. He was funny. He had a great personality. He loved, you know, sitting around family, especially hanging out with his cousin, Jay. Um, his, his cousin's name was Jason. Um, so he was, he was, yeah, he loved hanging around with Jay. He loved sports, although he wasn't great at sports. Um, but he loved sports. He loves playing ice hockey, and I think it was really because his cousin Jay played. Um, he loved hanging out. He loved Christmas. He loved, it was his thing of putting up the Christmas lights every year. That was his thing. No one else was getting involved in it. That was his thing to do. Um, he knew where he was going to be putting them, the whole thing. He never wanted any help doing it. That was his thing. I always thought, you know, rather than him becoming a police officer, I thought he was definitely going to become a meteorologist. 
um, because he was the first one that weather he would always constantly report the weather to you. Yeah. Um, especially in the winter time, snowstorms. He would be like telling you all about the snowstorms. But I definitely thought he was going to become a meteorologist um, for sure. Um, but he didn't. He ended up becoming a police officer. I think as he got older, um, you know, that started maybe summarizing very short, you know, what what he was like as a kid. Um, but I think as he became into adulthood and had children of his own, um, I think that's when we probably more connected. Um, him coming to realize, you know, where that structure and why that structure was implemented when he was a kid mm-hmm. um, and where that all came from because he was then the um, the structure in his home. Like, you know, we talked about that a lot as yeah. uh, when when he was an adult, like the things he would, would do, like as far as now his teenage daughters and stuff like that. Um, he was definitely the, the enforcer and the structure in the home and he... He would ask for advice on, on that type of stuff. Uh, can you describe how you processed initial grief, or maybe prolonged grief, and where you've placed your energy following Alex's death? Yeah. Um, this is hard. Um, when we lost Alex, um, I think me personally processing grief I didn't, to be honest with you. Um, it was me tapping into being a mom and being always the fixer. I became the role of, I was the fixer of everything in the home. So, for instance, you know, when the kids would have a nightmare or wake up in the middle of the night, um, I would always hear mom. So mom was the one that was being called all the time to... Um, to either solve a heartbreak from it, our daughters as teenagers for breaking up with a boyfriend or a sick tummy in the middle of the night. Um, Mom was sort of being the fixer. So when we lost Alex, I think um, for me, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what grieving. I, I still don't even think that I have started to process um, his loss to be honest with you but um, I stepped into the role of making sure my family were okay yeah. um, his siblings and my husband um, for sure um, definitely being the watchful eye of of them making sure they were okay and how could I help them be able to process it I think the day after Alex you know I was thinking about this the other day and I think the day after Alex passed away, I came into work as a normal day. Um, I knew I shouldn't have that day, yeah. um, but I felt I needed to just be normal. Like, is am I going to wake up out of this nightmare that's after happening to our family? So um, I came into work the next day and... Um, there was obviously people coming in um, to the cafe, um, police officers. Um, Captain Capercio came in from Weymouth and a few other police officers and state trooper. My friend John Hubbard uh, came in and I remember just them asking for me and um, basically counselling me um, through sort of that early stage. I'll never forget them um, through that. But I remember I came in that day and saying to my staff, I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, just let me do my thing in the kitchen. Please just prevent people from coming in and start to talking to me. Um, and I did end up going home that day because it was definitely just too much. But I didn't realize that at the beginning. Um, when I did came in, I just sort of wanted to get in and... Um, I wanted things to be normal um, as the way they were before. I didn't realize that our lives were going to change for forever. Um, and then realizing, yes, this is forever. And uh, I'm not going to wake up from a bad nightmare. 
this is real and it's after happening. Um, so I think for me initially, as you asked the question, Jay, um, like what did I do to, you know, start the process of grief, the initial grief of losing them? I didn't. I really didn't. Um, I don't even know what that was. What's 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 grieving supposed to look like? I don't know. Um, it wasn't until maybe I think I threw myself into work. Um, I used work as a barrier for me to block out any thoughts of pain or any um, feeling, I suppose, because it was a numbness there. But I knew once I got into work that I had to switch off anything that I was feeling um, of sadness. I had to switch it off. Um, so when I came into work, I had to do what I had to do to make the business and the cafe operate um, as normal um, and be able to still provide a service to customers. You know, a lot of customers coming in didn't know the situation. Um, so I had to still provide a service to, to customers um, as, as the show must go on. And, and that's sort of what I felt in that time. When I did go home and in the car, um, I definitely allowed myself to cry in the car. And, you know, the initial feeling I got was angry. I was very angry at Alex um, for putting our family through this. Why, why do this? Why, why couldn't you talk to me? When we had talked so many nights sitting out on our back deck over a beer or a glass of wine or whatever it might be and sitting so many nights talking about how he was feeling and what he was going through. He was going through a lot of personal stuff. So, um, yeah, so I was mad at him um, that he couldn't come to me and talk to me about if he did have thoughts or was planning to take his life. Um, that suicide was in his head and he was thinking those thoughts, that line of thought. Um, we never once had spoken about any of that. Mm -hmm. um, so the initial grief of um, grieving, I didn't go through a grieving process. Um, I did allow myself to have moments in the car when no one else was around on my way home from work. Um, but once I got home and pulled in that driveway, those tears were wiped away and I was in the door of being the fixer again. So I didn't really let any of my family see that, um, but I did allow myself to do it on my way home. Um, yeah. I don't really know how to respond to that. You you and I developed a, a friendship before we developed a podcast, so I've I've heard some of it. Um, but it's it's such a powerful, uh, so impactful listening to you speak about the loss of Alex and the process of grief, and and I'm even hearing some support in there. Uh, and I think maybe that's why this topic is is so often avoided because it's yeah. it's so powerful. Um, thank you for sharing. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, <clears throat> the thing the thing about you know when we did lose Alex at the beginning. Um, the area that, you know, the area that sort of I wanted to focus on was was basically, um, you know, we have a picture up on right inside the door of the cafe. Um, and people would say, oh, who's, who's, do you know this gentleman? Do you know this man? And I'd say, yeah, he's my stepson. Um, we lost him. Um, he passed away. And, I mean, obviously it has his date on it, um, the day that we lost him but I never would mention how we lost him. Mm -hmm. And um, it was only really as time went on that um, when someone did um, ask me who is the gentleman, it was only as time went on that as the anger left me mm -hmm. um, and I realized that it wasn't only him that's suffering. There's so many other first responders suffering that I started saying that's my stepson and we lost him to suicide 
um, that's sort of really what drove me, started to drive me um, into an area of this is wrong. We need yeah. to we need to talk about this more, and the only way that I'm going to be able to do it um, and get the message out there is by talking about it openly, with no shame, um, so that others can seek help. So this is why we started this Jay, right? It was both our passion um, with helping first responders and with the belief um, that if we talk openly um, and more, that it'll be maybe less stigma with less lives lost um, in, in the home run. And I know both of us are very passionate about that. And this is how it came all about with the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Yes, ma'am. What do you hope to achieve from co-hosting this podcast? What do I hope to achieve? I hope to achieve that first responders um, will be able to freely speak about how they are really feeling from whether it be PTSD, from trauma, depression, anxiety, whatever it might be that they're feeling from the job um, that they're doing. I want listeners to know and hear very clearly that every call that a first responder goes out on, every call, they're picking up something, something. Just think about that. Whether it be something small or something big, um, wherever call they may have been gone on. And all of those calls, all of those picking up some things add up over time. And that could be a possible, lead into a possible situation of a first responder ending up in crisis or, or needing help. And um, I think that the job that they do every day that ourselves as a community um, need to support our first responders in getting help and being advocates and speak out about it um, to get them uh, to get help. But I also want to say that if we can just get past the stigma in first response, there is a lot of good that can be done in the first responder culture. And if I put it this way, if there's a history in a department or in an agency where there has been support shown previously, well, then a first responder is definitely going to realize, well, I'm also going to get that support. But if there's lack of support and punishment that they have witnessed, from a first responder, from someone else in the department, not only them, but if there's punishment or a lack of support in a department, well, then they're obviously also going to assume that this is what they are going to receive. So they won't go and get help in their own department. And not only are they going to see it in other departments, it might be in a different agency. It might be a police officer, but they saw or heard something happening in the fire department or in in whatever, it doesn't matter. If they see it, they're going to note that in their head. This could possibly happen in my own department too. Yep. So the goal of this podcast for me is to possibly just get past that stigma. How can we get first responders to get past that stigma of going and seeking help? So for me, it's going to happen take a little bit of time. It's also going to be um, one department at a time, mm -hmm. one police chief, one fire chief at a time mm -hmm. and coming out and stepping out and saying, you know, I'm here to listen. I'm here to help you and you're going to get the support that you need. It's just going to take one department or one police chief to be able to do that, to make a difference. And I know if it was out there and I know there is 
departments that are supportive. So please call in or email us um, and let us know that you're out there. We want to hear what you're doing or what support of your first responder, what support you got that helped you in your department. We don't only want to put out there, you know, there's lack of support and the stigma in departments. We want to hear the good stuff too. Um, so we can inspire departments to do the same thing. So, um, yeah, email us. Very well put, Miss Linda. And I agree with you, um, which you obviously know. I think that if we can move that cultural needle, uh, then what we're doing here is, is a success. Yeah, yeah. And that's all we want to do. We want to have open and honest conversation. Right? Yes, ma'am. And that's what we're going to do. So, um so, yeah. That's all the questions I have for you, Miss Linda. Do okay. you have any questions prepared for me? I do. I have lots of questions for you, Mr. J. Are you ready? Yes, I am. All right. So, just like you asked me, Jay, like, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Do you live locally? All of that t- lovely stuff. I've lived in Weymouth now for about 15 years. I love Weymouth. I feel a sense of pride calling this town home. I have two children in the Weymouth school system. My son Jackson's in the first grade. My daughter Reese is in the fifth. I was raised, however, in the neighboring town of Braintree, and I loved growing up there too. Very fond of that community. Both my parents uh, live locally, so do my siblings, and we all remain very close. Mm -hmm. So you are also a veteran, sir. Yes, ma'am. Tell me a little bit about that. I served in the Army from 1998 to 2004. Uh, my job in the Army was military police. So uh, after completing basic and advanced training at Fort McClellan, Alabama, I received orders to Germany. Uh, I lived in southern Bavaria for about four years. I loved every minute of it. Uh, during my time in Germany, we deployed twice, both times to Kosovo, which is a region in the Balkans. Um, I cherish that time. I cherish the time that I spent in Germany and the Balkans, along with the friendships that I developed through soldiering. Uh, many of those friendships are stronger than ever today. Uh, my second duty station was, was Fort Drum. That's in upstate New York. I arrived there in early 2003 and went over to Afghanistan not long after, uh, not long after arriving. I reflect on my time in the Army often, and I regard the experience as one of tremendous growth. I was a young man searching for direction and purpose, meaning, and I first found those things through military service. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit. You said you were a young man, um, you know, going into the military, searching for purpose. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, where does that come from? Well, as I said, I I grew up in Braintree, and uh, I graduated from Braintree High School in 1998, uh, but I graduated from the Alternative Education Program, and uh, that is is a program that puts a heavy focus on values and character development. Now, I was well aware that, uh, or at least I didn't expect to have a successful college career. It's just not where I was. It's not where I was in my life at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, Mike Bachman, Mike Tassoni, some of these other men that, that, ran, that ran that program, um, I respected what they were teaching us, and I wanted to further develop my character. I was attracted to that. I was attracted to uh, establishing my values and building on a foundation that they had kind of presented to us uh, as, as young men and ladies. Uh, and I saw that in the military, and I chased it, and I did find it there. Yeah. So it sounds like that the program that you were in school, right, in high school, um, offered you some structure. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yeah. So that's what you felt maybe. I don't know. You tell me. Um, is that what you were seeking when you joined the military? You were looking for that structure? You were craving it? Yes, I was. I was craving, I was craving structure and um, further development of my character. Okay. So can you tell me about your service at the Weymouth Fire Department? Yes, ma'am. Uh, when I finished my service in the Army, I came home uh, well aware that, that camaraderie was very important to me. 
I'd also come to understand that I found the act of service or, or being of service rewarding. I was lucky enough to get on the fire department here in Weymouth in, in 2004, and much like the military, I loved that job. I still love the job. I love the culture of the fire service uh, uniquely and, and more broadly. I love the culture of first response. So when you came out of the Army, um, what, did you just get a job? Did you apply? How did you, how did you get on the Weymouth Fire Department? Well, I took, um, I took the civil service tests and... Uh, Weymouth had come into some grant money. There was an academy starting up. So I, I, I was fortunate to get on rather quickly when, when I got home. And uh, it was through the process of, of taking the civil service exam, being interviewed um, at the fire department, and ultimately accepting the position. So how many years did you serve on there? Uh, 18 years. I 18 was on the years. Yes, ma'am. Wow. So over that time. Yes. Um, you have a diagnosis of PTSD. Yes, ma'am. Um, so sh can you share with us a little bit about that? Like, tell us a little bit, where did that come from? Where did that stem from, that diagnosis? Well, I was first diagnosed with PTSD uh, through the VA healthcare system, and, and that was in the year 2012. So I had already been on the fire department for a number of years, uh, I'd been in the military uh, and been on a few deployments. It's been my experience that, that trauma is cumulative, so I found myself having traumatic reactions, but I wasn't comfortable speaking about it. I wasn't comfortable being open about it. Um, Why not? Well, there, there is a stigma, and, uh, and, and that's not an excuse. Some of that stigma is, is self-imposed. It, it, I felt it took courage and, and maybe a type of courage that I didn't have yet that I had to develop. And I didn't want to tell people that I was having trouble with mental health, with emotional stability, that some parts of, of the jobs that, that I loved, uh, that in the fire service and, and that of a soldier, were, were possibly adding up in ways that, that were uh, limiting my ability to, to be me outside of the job. Uh, I suppose I, there was some shame involved, and I had to overcome yeah. that. So I reached out to the VA. They offered help. Uh, they did have programs in place, but I walked away. It would be a number, a number of years, uh, and my condition would continue to deteriorate before I ultimately um, did get help. When did you do that? That was in 2018, Finally got to a point where I reached out to my union, and their response was incredible. Uh, there's a peer support network here for first responders in this state in Massachusetts. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, ma'am. I was, I was glad that it was there because I needed it. And, and the structure of having uh, another man or woman that, that does the job uh, there that understands the circumstances and, and uh, to be welcomed with compassion and understanding, uh, not judged, by a peer, uh, I found that I, I found that part of the process uh, very important to, to at least to my outcome, to my ability to be open to further care. Uh, ultimately, I ended up at Onsite Academy, and I, I can't say enough about um, about the way that they were able to help me. Uh, the staff is culturally competent. And I found the help that I needed through individual therapy, EMDR. I, I go on retreats. Um, I put a lot of effort into into recovering from uh, trauma. Yeah. So you said like 2012, right? Yes, ma'am. You reached out to the VA and they diagnosed you with PTSD in 2012. But when was it? You said years later. Um you finally reached out to your union. Like, what was years later? Well, when was, when, it was like, it was 2018, so it was it was six years. Six years. And over you know over that time, um, I continued to regularly engage uh, or be exposed to traumatic incidents and, and occurrences. Trauma, you know, I believe is collective. It's cumulative. So my condition continued. To deteriorate, my symptoms worsened, and it was a difficult time. Yeah, six years. Um, 
I guess or I assume that you were trying to fix it yourself. Yes, ma'am, I was. I was trying to heal on my own. Yeah. I, w- I found I wasn't able to. You weren't able to on yourself. So what would you say to a first responder um, who's out there listening, who's trying to fix it themselves or just afraid to go and seek help? What would, what would you say to a first responder? Now that you're after saying to me, I couldn't do it on my own. I, I would I would encourage them to seek competent help. Um, I would encourage them to reach out to the peer support program, and uh, I would suggest, uh, or at least it's my belief, that uh, you know not only is it cumulative, but but trauma is progressive, and and so are the reactions. Just like a disease, it continues to get worse. Uh, you know, symptoms continue to to. Um, grow in size and in the way that they impact a person's life. Um, or at least that was my experience. So I would say or suggest that there's, there's really no alternative other than to get help. And I think that, uh, is beneficial to the, to the individual and to the department as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. So how are you feeling now? Right. You've, you've gotten help. Yes, ma'am. Help. And, um, how are you feeling now? Are you, are you are you still in the fire department? No, ma'am. I, I left the fire department in 2022, uh, just last year in September, and in order to um, hopefully serve that culture in another way. So I'll, I'll be going back to grad school, and and I look forward to working with first responders and veterans, and hopefully, um, Hopefully, I'll be capable of, of helping them because I sure needed it, and, and I'm grateful that, that I that I got it when I needed it. Um, wow. Yeah, so how am I now? Uh, I feel better than, than I've ever felt in, in my life. Um, I feel more purpose, more meaning. Um, what helps you? What helps you if you feel that? How did you, what has helped you? get to now to where you are feeling now about your life like what has what has helped you what do you do well initially it was it was processing the trauma through the different uh like therapeutic modalities or, or what i mentioned earlier and and now in in terms of of maintenance i live a different life today i i'm i'm present i'm an active participant in in my own life uh, and some of the things I do to, or I did to get there and I do to maintain that state of being, I meditate. I meditate every day. Uh, I connect with nature. I walk in the woods. I exercise. Um, I slow down. I slow down. And I find, um, I find peace and I find balance and I love it. Yeah. So it sounds like um, once you got or allowed yourself to be open to receiving some help. I think that is obviously, I'm not, I'm not saying obviously, but it sort of sounds like maybe that could also go al- along with a lot of first responders that, you know, they don't want to admit or accept that um, they need help, that maybe they could fix it themselves. And in the meantime, you know, you're struggling more and more and more. Um, and as you said, you know, you're a participant in your life now. You're, you know, you're not just surviving right. um, or in survival mode, um, which I'm sure a lot of that came from your military um, background, um, surviving right out there when you were deployed. Um, but for now being open to seeking help and doing the things that you're doing, for your well-being, um, it's amazing, and it's amazing to actually, you know, for me, um, we've become friends. Yes, ma'am. You know, over over time, and uh, so for for me to watch you grow um, into the person that you you are, and always open when we do have chats or conversations, always open to, um, you know, try new things and whatever that might be. Um, so it is for me a pleasure to get to know you and be be part of a journey of you going into this podcast with, you know, us developing a a friendship so much that 
um, we want to do a, a podcast, you know, be co-hosts um, about something that we share so passionately about. For me as a parent, um, you know, not only, you know, going through the loss of Alex, but also being able to, you know, help my own family still go through. Griefing doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, the loss doesn't go away. The pain that... I feel personally every day doesn't go away. We just learn how to be able to live through it. And um, and I know that's so much so for so many families um, who have gone through um, the loss of a, of a child or a family member or a loved one. Um, is You just learn how to, there's so many unanswered questions of all the whys and, you know, why did this happen to our family? Um, so, um but yeah, the fact that you've, you know, you've been able to get yourself help because the trauma that you have gone through, um, who knows? Like if it went unattended, um, where your thoughts might have gone um, down the road if unrecognized by yourself, I need help. Right. Um, so for that reason... Um, I just want to say that I am so proud of you for having the courage and the strength, determination, mm-hmm. um, and the perseverance to to be able to do what you're doing for self-healing. Because if you don't look after yourself as a first responder, you can't look after someone else or take care of someone else when you're out there. So... I just want to let you know that, sir, and I'm grateful for you for getting the help that you needed. Thank you for the kind words, ma'am. You know the feeling's mutual. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you that you spoke about was, you know, we kind of revert. We went back to um, first responders being afraid to reach out for help or being reluctant to reach out for help, and. Um, there's a lot of reasons that that makes that that makes sense. One of them that I don't think I mentioned is uh, fear of losing the job, right? Yeah. Like I, I I don't think I mentioned that, and I want to because I, it's important um, for reasons that 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 make sense. A, a police officer, a firefighter, um, will often be reluctant to admit that they're experiencing mental health problems yeah. because um, they they don't they don't want to lose their job. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a hurdle. Yeah, it is a hurdle. And, um, for sure, um, in the, in the police officer's eyes, you know, going and seeking help, the, one of the things that has to go through their mind is, um, my gun is going to be taken away from me and I won't be able to do my job. And if I can't do my job, well, then I'm not going to be able to support my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of those things must go through their heads, all the domino effect of going and seeking help, um, you know, can come come into play. Yeah. Why they won't go and seek help um, because of it, especially if they witness um, someone else in their own department who has not maybe had went and got help, you know, to seek help right. um, within their department and didn't get it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I know I if that was me and I was in their shoes, I would do the same thing because I would be concerned about how am I going to keep a roof over my head? How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay my mortgage and pay the bills? Right, because they still have to pay the bills, right. um, whether they seek help or not. So they try to plow through it, um, and and like you at the beginning, Jay, probably say, "Well, I'm going to see can I fix it myself?" Yeah, um, exactly. And um, so. If there was someone that came to you and said to you, "I'm not feeling good, I'm I'm struggling a little bit," what would you say to them? What advice would you give? Well, that that has that has happened um, a few times, and and it's been the most rewarding part of of my seeking help is is when someone reaches out to me and says, "Hey, um, you know." This is what I have going on. And, and what I do is I try to listen. I try to listen um, more than I speak. And um, 
I try to guide them to the appropriate resources, agencies. I mentioned the peer support network, but I encourage them to get help. And, uh, and I recognize the, the barriers, the hurdles along the way. I mean, you talk about a police officer having his weapon taken away. That's, you know, the uniform is part of our identity. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a real, it's a real thing that can be, that can be difficult, uh, to face. So, um, I try to acknowledge those things and, and look right at them. And, and then I, I encourage any first responder that's that's dealing with traumatic reactions to get help because uh, generally it gets worse. Yeah. Um, you know, if I was asking myself that question, if someone came to me um, for help, um, I think first I would say, look at resources available, what's local resources? Well, there's a new 988 hotline now instead of all the one eight hundred said that is number that you you won't remember right um so the nine eight eight um is a number that anybody can reach out to or family members if you notice um anything different about a family member or your son your daughter your husband wife um whatever it might be um is you can also call the hotline and let them know what you are noticing and ask them for some guidance. But um, also to a first responder directly, um, I'd say talk to a friend. Talk to your friend who you know. Ask yourself, who can I, who's my person? Who's a person I can go to? Um, that is going to be no judgment. Because I think there's a lot of fear, right, of being judged, right, um, of you're being weak. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't want to feel, don't want to feel them weak. So reach out to a friend or a person, whatever it might be, a neighbor or, you know, someone in your coffee shop, um, your local coffee shop, right? Um, whatever it might be, um, reach out to them, um, where you feel there's going to be no judgment, um, that someone is just going to be able to listen to you um, and hear you. And sometimes um, for me, you know, I've turned my energy into or my grieving, our loss of Alex into, um, it just happened organically, to be honest with you, but we have an opportunity at the cafe to be able to um, make our first responders, everyone that walks in the door, to be honest with you, but our first responders especially, um, you know, feel welcome and, and just a smile, um, a greeting when they walk in the door, eye contact um, and offering them a cup of, cup of coffee um, every day when they, when they come into the cafe. Um, I, want, I want our environment here at my rallies to be able to um, present that um, to every first responder that walks in the door. Again, it didn't, it didn't happen. I've never planned it that way. It just happened that way. Um, and, and that's the way, and I like it. I like it. And, and even that was even before we lost Alex, um, since we lost Alex. Yeah. That has become more evident, um, for sure. Um, cause you just never know what someone in front of you in line is, is going through. So a smile, um, a nod. How are you doing today? Might just make a difference in someone's life. Mm. So Try to be kind here. Um, while we're while we're doing that, we're very observant about that for sure. Um, my energy, um, you know, have I wanted to wallow in self pity or um, grief and curl up in a ball? Yeah, but that's not m- my my style. That's not where I. That's not me. So I've decided to be to want to be able to. Um, put my energy into helping people, helping others, and focuses on on that. My focus is on that. So, um, you know, talking about mental health openly um, is where I'm, where I'm at, where my head is at, um, and not be ashamed um, to talk about it. And also, if any first responder wants to come in to me and talk to me and have a chat, you know where I am. Um, I'm always here and I'm always open for a chat if you ever need it. Um, but I definitely want to turn my energy into something positive. 
for sure. Me too. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, co-hosting the podcast, yeah. um, yourself and I, <clears throat> what do you hope to achieve from it? Well, I hope to learn more than anything else. I look forward to hearing men and women who have served or are serving their communities as first responders share their experiences with trauma. I look forward to hearing the perspective of family members and how they've been impacted as a result of loving a first responder. I hope to develop a, a deeper understanding of the impact of trauma in first response and to use that understanding to help others in the future. I hope to see this podcast uh, raise awareness and maybe inspire hope in others where it doesn't exist currently. and Maybe that'll develop into some healing. So yeah. I guess I, I hope to spread hope. I hope to spread hope. That yeah. sounds like a lovely thing. Um, yeah, hope. If you have hope in your life, you have a sense of someone cares about me. Yeah. If you have hope in your life, you have strength. If you have hope in your life, you have courage. Yeah. If you have hope in your life, it instills some determination in your life. And a lot of those type of things are lost when you don't have hope. Um, you have hope, you have spirit mm-hmm. and drive um, to be able to go on, right? Um, can I share a little bit about... Yes, ma'am. I was going to say you've been spreading hope all around a little bit. Can you tell us about the hope blankets and some of the other things you've been involved with? Yeah. Um, so what's happened? Um, the first year we lost Alex. Can I, can I share a little bit about that? Please do. Okay. So the first year we lost Alex, um, we weren't going to invite um, some of Alex's buddies over to our home um, to, I wouldn't say like... But to remember him, to keep his name alive mm-hmm. within his department, with his peer, his peers, right in in the in the police department, and um, so that night I was planning on not only just having people over and and having food and a few drinks and whatever it might be, but I wanted to do something meaningful um, with him, and that was to make a blanket um, that we could all make together. Even men, right, making a, a blanket. And I pictured us all making a blanket together, having some meaning behind it, and be able to have those guys leave that night with a couple of those blankets in order for them to be able to give them to someone that they might know mm-hmm. um, who might be struggling. And they could just slip it to them and say, this came from the concourses. And, and it was all going to be part of all of our healing collectively of starting to heal. And that was like a year in um, and Alex's was gone. And um, it was, it was COVID. It was, it was two days before Alex's birthday is on March 14th. And um, so we started celebrating his birthday, but keeping his birthday alive. And one of his buddies, Ryan um, Darty from the police department, he was always, checking in and in with us and I knew he was hurting also mm-hmm. along with other guys who I hadn't spoken with um, a lot but I had sort of kept connecting connection with Ryan and um, so it was Alex's birthday and, and they, they were all coming over and, and then COVID hit March 16th so it was two days before his birthday and um, we weren't comfortable having Everyone come. Everyone, you know, the country was talking all about it, and was the, was the country going to shut down and all that type of stuff. Sure. And um, so we weren't comfortable having folks over to our home, and so I called up the group of people who I had invited over, and uh, said, "Can we postpone this for like a week or two and see what's going on here? Because um, you know, I don't want anyone to get sick and that type of stuff." And they were all, "Yep, yeah, we feel the same." Well, little did we know that it was going to be, you know, two and a half three years later, right? And um, so that desire to do the blanket hasn't left me, um, for sure. That hasn't left me. I still have some of the kits at home and um, I had made up a couple of them myself over time, um, just sort of thinking about that. So that desire never left me. Um, But what has happened is it has gotten bigger Mm -hmm. um, over that time. Um, 
So on March 14th this year, 2023, um, I invited Alex's buddies over to the house mm-hmm. with um, some other folks. And you were there also, Jay. Yep. And um, with the purpose of introducing what we now call or named the blanket that I was originally going to make has a name. It's called the Hope Blanket. And um, hope stands for um, healing within the letters, the four letters, healing within, um, optimistic for the future, the power of positive self-talking and embracing where you are now. And for me, um, the word hope, um, as I said before, it means strength, it means courage, it means all of those things that gives you hope to get past a stage where you might be in your life to be able to move forward, right, in a a really good direction. So those words um, came together and um, and embracing where you are now, I mean, the first responder terms, I mean, they can't start healing from where they were before, right, because if they're going through trauma and PTSD and struggling, they're not the same. Right. The same. So they can't heal from where they were before. They can only start healing from where they are now. And um, so that it's a big word. Mm-hmm. So we call it the hope blankets. And so that night on March 14th, we introduced the hope blankets. Myself and my family introduced the hope blankets to all of these first responders um, and other other folks who, who were invited um, to our home. And we launched the Alex G. Kokoros Memorial Fund. Um, so with the hopes of the Memorial Fund is to raise funds so to buy supplies, the fabric, to make these blankets. Um, I'll be reaching out to the community to make these blankets. So we'll be giving lots and lots of folks opportunities to help and do something um, good for our first responders. So what we want to do is make the blankets, but be also able to get them to... Um, different organizations like one that you mentioned earlier on, like Onsite Academy and different um, organizations who help first responders in retreat forms. And um, and we want one of those, all of those first responders who attend those type of programs to be able to go home at one of these blankets um, with a little card inside it and a label attached to the, the blanket with the meaning of hope and a little card inside how the blanket came about little poem on it and a little bit of information about Alex and our family and why we came up with this um, thought of a hope blanket. We want first responders to go home after leaving some treatment um, to feel cared for um, and also know that there's folks out there who care about you and we want you to get help, but also that suicide is not an option in their heads. So we want to give them a little bit of warmth when they go home and they can have that blanket and I hope it gives them a good feeling and remembering from what they, what treatment and what therapy they went through, whatever program they went through. So, um, yeah. So we started that and um, we're in the process of now starting to fundraise and get the, the word out there. I haven't even, like, sort of really talked about it, but we did set up an Alex G. Kokoros Memorial Fund page um, on Facebook. Um, so if you haven't gotten on there and liked it yet, please do, um, because we will. And I'm not openly, if you know me, I'm not going to come out and say, hey, can you give me money? That's not what I am. But we do plan on doing some fundraisers um, out there so that we can gain some funds to be able to buy the materials only purely. It's 100% going into buying the fabrics. Everything else will be voluntary um, happening. And then um, the podcast, the name of the podcast, right, is Hope Beyond the Badge, mm-hmm. which stems into the same Hope family um, behind that. And Jay did a, our artwork um, for Hope Beyond the Badge podcast. So when you get on there and you find us on Spotify or all those places, you'll see beautiful artwork that is very meaningful. And our Jay, our very own Jay, um, designed the artwork and then Lane Printing um, brought it to life for him. Um, so that's all part of it. 
And then what has inspired me um, personally is to continue to help first responders. So um, I enrolled in um, Bridgewater State University um, to become a professional life coach to first responders. And what I want to do is, um, I'm not a therapist for sure, and I'm not a psychologist. He's given me the hairy eyeball. <laughs> He's given me the eye across the room saying, yeah, 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 you are. Um, but I'm not. I'm, I don't feel that I, I need um, any of those degrees or qualifications to be able to be, listen yeah. and uh, to become a listener. And sometimes that's all we need mm-hmm. is to be a listener. And um, so I enrolled um, in Bridgewater State University and um, yeah, I've been training to be going in school, back in school, mm-hmm. um, to be a professional life coach, life coach for first responders. So um, I intend to use it for sure. You are an absolute inspiration, ma'am. Thank you. It's very admirable, it's inspiring, and I'm sure that, that you are going to spread hope, and I'm sure that you're going to make a difference. I think we all will. Yes, um, I think we all will. I think the podcast is um, something that is needed, um, open, raw conversation. Um, you know, we're not going to only have, we have lots of interviews lined up um, coming soon, right, Jay? Yes, we do. Um, we have lots of interviews lined up, so um, it's not only about, like, uh, someone you know losing but also families beyond the badge means it's the families it's friends it's colleagues it's siblings um everyone who has been affected by mental health not right. only suicide and uh, even though we're talking a little bit about that today as far as my own personal experience losing alex but about mental health your own trauma that you've gone through um we'll be talking about resources we'll be talking you know to some first responders um, coming in, some first responders who, you know, are also going through other healing. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be rewarding for me for sure to be a part of this. So I'm honoured to be sitting across the table from you, sir. The honour is all on this side of the table, ma'am. Well, thank you. So uh, who do we have next week? Do we have... Uh, Dave and Janice Betts coming in next week to be interviewed? We do. We have um, Dave and Janice Betts um, are going to be in an episode for next week, um, next Friday. We do plan on, on releasing our episodes every Friday, right, I believe? Yes, ma'am. Um, so Dave and Janice Betts um, will be in next Friday, uh, next week to be interviewed, and then we'll have their, their episode up. It will be very, very worth um, listening to. Can I share a little bit about information? Um, Dave and uh, Janice Betts are, are from, um, they live in Peabody. Peabody, how you pronounce it? I'm letting my Irish accent going on here. Um, but they, they live in Peabody. Um, Dave Betts is a captain um, in Chelsea Police Department. And they lost their son um, to suicide um, back in 2016. Um, they'll be sharing raw information about their journey um, through their own healing process, grieving and the loss of, of their son. Um, so I look forward to chatting with them, for sure. Uh, likewise. Do we have anything else for our audience today? I think that is it for today. I think they're going to be tired of listening to us that <laughs> way, so I think that's it for today. All right. Thank uh, you for listening, folks. Yeah, thank you for listening. Till next week.